0: From the ACLU, this is At Liberty, I'm Emerson Sykes, a staff attorney here at the ACLU and your host. One of the things that's most difficult about the COVID-19 pandemic is that it's so difficult to know what's coming next. The governor of New York has said that we're likely past the peak of the outbreak here, and some states have already begun to reopen. But what will it take to keep us safe and prevent new spikes in infection? Many experts say that we will not be out of the woods until there's a vaccine. But how would a national vaccination plan work? At the same time, technological solutions are being proposed, especially related to contact tracing, the process by which public health officials can map and anticipate the spread of a virus. But technological solutions raise a whole host of questions of their own regarding privacy and civil liberties. Today, we're joined by Professor Michelle Goodwin, the founding director of the Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy at the University of California, Irvine School of Law, and ACLU attorney Jennifer Granick, who leads our work on surveillance and cybersecurity. Thank you both very much for joining us. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure
0: to be with you. First, we are obviously recording this in the midst of the COVID pandemic. We're all sheltering at home. How are you guys doing?
1: I'm doing fine. My family's doing fine. Uh, During this time, I had anticipated in part being in the Netherlands, which is where my daughter is studying and doing a PhD right now. Uh, But she's sheltering in place there where there is universal health care and people are being tested. And so she's in very good shape. (laughs) Glad to hear it. Glad to hear it.
2: I'm here in San Francisco. I feel very lucky because our weather is beautiful and we are still allowed outside for some exercise. And my daughter's school has done a really nice job setting up some lessons for them to learn without it being too burdensome. So we're able to play a lot of board games.
0: (laughs) Nice. Nice. Well, I'm glad to hear you and yours are doing well. And of course, there are a lot of questions around COVID-19 related to the epidemiology and the medical side of things. But we're here to talk with you because of your expertise, Michelle, in health policy and the law, and Jennifer in terms of surveillance and technology and the law. And starting with you, Michelle, so much of what we are experiencing feels unprecedented. The kinds of questions that are facing health policy officials, the kinds of debates that we're having, the kinds of challenges that our systems are under, but you've done a lot of thinking about viruses and health crises and how they play out in somewhat predictable ways. So I'm wondering for you, does it really feel unprecedented or are there things that feel very familiar from your work on previous outbreaks?
1: Well, it's not unprecedented. Many have referred to the outbreak of 1918, the pandemic then, which uh, in the media has been referenced as the Spanish uh, flu pandemic. Um, And it's worth looking at what that actually represented. It wasn't actually that it emerged from Spain, uh, just as in the same way we have to be very cautious about and reject the notion of calling this a Chinese virus or the Wuhan uh, virus. Um, The reality is that these things happen. What you see now outflowing in the United States is a matter of response, which has not all been that rapid. And when you get response, so after the fact, that is when there is a real risk of infringing on civil rights and civil liberties, because one is rushing at the end to try to respond rather than being proactive and engaging in the appropriate ways with legislatures, both state and federal.
0: You wrote, along with Professor Erwin Chemerinsky, a piece called No Immunity, race, class, and civil liberties in times of health crisis. I'm wondering if you can just share with us what are the main lessons that we need to learn from these previous health crises that we keep in mind going forward? Sure.
1: Well, as we think about these issues, there are times in which there is an actual Disease, an actual virus that we need to pay attention to and that we should use medical science and should calibrate, you know, through epidemiology and public health, how exactly to address it. But also one serious concern is the fact that health and safety has been used as a proxy for discrimination. You know, just a century ago with eugenics in the United States, that was played out as a kind of health issue, that the United States was being swamped by people who were considered socially and morally unfit. That was actually sort of framed in medicine when the case Buck v. Bell went before the United States Supreme Court. It was a case that was framed as a public health kind of issue where the United States, where states needed to start sterilizing people who were considered unfit. You know, as Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes said, three generations of imbeciles are enough. You know, he specifically claimed that the Authority that a state had to vaccinate was broad enough to cover, quote, snipping the fallopian tubes. After that, there were tens of thousands of people in the United States that were forcibly sterilized against their will, forced abortions against people so that they could not reproduce. These were platforms that were carried out against people as young as 10 and 11 years old. But it's the ability to use the excuse of protecting the public's health to carry out a very racist agenda that infringes upon civil rights and civil liberties, and more importantly, that really infringes upon one's dignity.
2: The AIDS crisis is another example of that, isn't it, Michelle, it where is. you have this yes. discrimination that really affects what the public health response
1: is? Absolutely.
0: Well, Jennifer, I mean, I, I do want to turn to you now because we heard from Michelle the history of the guise of medical science as a mechanism for all sorts of discrimination and other illegitimate public policy aims. But in the current crisis, one of the arguments is that this one is in fact different because we now have technological tools within our grasp that can potentially have massive effects on flattening the curve, lowering all of the relevant statistics in terms of infections, in terms of deaths. The first question I wanna ask you is, will technology save us?
2: You know, I wish that were true. And I do believe that there are some beneficial technologies. I mean, this is a crisis and technology is very powerful. That is why we care about it. But, you know, technology is not a cure-all. And I think for some of these companies that are putting forth products now saying this can help us with the pandemic, I think that that's often that's snake oil Or opportunism. And I think for lawmakers, governors, and for the public, the idea that there's a solution is very attractive, but it's a little bit like looking for your keys under the lamppost, because that's where you can see. Not every kind of technology that's out there is actually going to be useful.
1: When we're talking about the surveillance technologies that are being launched by or, or that are being negotiated with legislatures, it's important to note that like what we need right now are ventilators. What we need are PPEs, personal protective, you know, gear. What you need is gloves, masks and things like that. You know, facial surveillance technologies, which are already have proven to be quite faulty, are actually not the answer, but they would in fact be financially beneficial to the companies that are looking to sell them to legislators.
0: I'm not surprised talking to an ACLU board member and an ACLU attorney that the main (laughs) message is be skeptical of whatever is being sold to you. Uh, And I totally appreciate that we should, you know, not think of these things as unprecedented, understand the dynamics that are behind all of these proposals and debates around public safety and public health and privacy. But I want to talk about some of the specific proposals that have been made recently in response to the COVID-19 crisis. So, Jennifer, Apple and Google have proposed a solution that would in some ways track the contacts of someone who has been tested positive for COVID-19. Can you talk a little bit about the details of this proposal and any potential risks that you see?
2: Sure. Just to sort of set the stage, contact tracing is a long-standing public health practice, but usually conducted manually by people who are trained and go out and interview those who have tested positive and try to find out who else they may have been in contact with sufficiently that those other people could have been infected and then go talk to those people and offer medical care or inf- at least information and find out who they also might have been infected. Now, technology is a force multiplier. So the idea is to take technology, in particular our cell phones, and use that to not only make this kind of contact tracing more efficient, but also to do something that could never have been done before in the past, which is go find people who were unknown to the patient testing positive, or who that person may not have realized they were in close enough contact with. As you know, our cell phones are wonderful, and we sleep with them and shower with them, as the Supreme Court noted but they are also these very powerful surveillance devices and they generate location data. And so the initial idea was to use location data that's automatically already generated by our phones to figure out where we were and figure out where other people were and who we were near. This is an extremely invasive practice because our locations are very revealing. They can reveal not only who you're friends with, but where you go to church, what your medical status is. Are you in AA? Do you have political meetings? What are those political meetings? It can be a very detailed and sensitive picture of people's lives. The other thing is that it doesn't work. The location data generated by our phones is very useful for you know figuring out those patterns of movements, but it's not precise enough to put you and I within six feet of each other, hmm. which is the CDC-identified distance that we have to be in for contagion to be a possibility. The Apple-Google proposal doesn't use location proximity. It's using a different measurement which is proximity detection. So using a technology on your phone already, which is Bluetooth, a short distance radio wave, they are proposing a means by which when two phones are within Bluetooth range of each other, they will exchange identifiers. The identifiers are anonymized. The infected person will upload the data on their phone, which is this proximity log, And other people's phones will periodically check the proximity log. I do think the important thing here and one of the things that's interesting about the Apple Google proposal is it's not perfect, as I pointed out, but it does not have the invasive issues that the earlier location tracking proposals did because it is not tracking location and because of the
1: anonymizing aspects of the design. And Jennifer, I'd like to add to that. I think this conversation is not one that Silicon Valley and those who are engaged in advancing technology should just keep their hands off of, you know, public health issues and matters. It's not that. But that a proper calibration has to be really important. Unfortunately, We've seen over time that you know technology has outpaced law, and when technology outpaces law, that means that the issues that concern us, that are rooted in our constitution, not just federal, but also states that deal with matters of privacy and whatnot, might become vulnerable, in fact, have become vulnerable. We see this across a number of apps that are actually health-related, which sell data in, to other companies, to third parties and fourth parties and so forth. And individuals have no idea, you know, something that they think it, they're using to just monitor their heart. It turns out that the data that's being collected about their heart is then being sold elsewhere. So it's not that there isn't any room For those who are looking to provide some form of help to states and municipalities to do better at their jobs of tracking, it's just that we ought to be deeply concerned about civil liberties and civil rights and that it happens to be that there are industries in the past that have been engaged in health-related matters that haven't been committed to protecting people's privacy at all.
2: I think that's such an important comment, Michelle. You know, here in the United States, we have such weak consumer privacy laws. And so we really need to be vigilant about how this data is used. We need to be sure that if data is to be collected, it's for a public health purpose and that public health experts say that it will be useful that the data is collected only for those purposes and used only for those purposes, that people understand you know, what's happening with their data, and that it's destroyed when the public health emergency is over. And whatever surveillance infrastructure has been built, and I think surveillance infrastructures are very dangerous, but whatever surveillance infrastructure has been built, it'll be torn down at the end. We don't have a good track record of that in the United States. And it's one of the reasons we have to be so careful and make sure that privacy-friendly technological design is super important, but privacy-protecting policies and laws are every bit as important, if not more so.
1: And to that point, Jennifer, which is so spot on, the technology has to be calibrated to actually what public health experts need it for. Because what you also find is mission creep in this, right? Which is that it's technology that's a little bit more than actually what's necessary to address the public health concern. And that's where profit-driven motivations can creep in. And so, yes, this needs to be appropriately tailored. There must be use limitations. There must be data destruction. There must be transparency through and through about what this is about. You know, one thing that we've seen in the past is that legislators who want to respond effectively to the public that's elected them to serve, they may be very eager to sort of jump onto what's being sold to them, may not be very aware themselves of the expanse of the uh, types of technologies that are being offered to them. And so they too must be vigilant.
2: One thing that is also an issue is bias in the data. Absolutely. And, you know, right, if you're using data such as location information generated by smartphones or from health tracker apps or, you know, those sorts of body-worn devices there are segments of the population that are more likely to have those things than others. And there's just gonna be bias built into that data. And if that data is used for something really important, like deciding where public health resources should be directed, then that necessarily means that you're going to undercount low income communities in particular that aren't, you know, splurging on these technological devices.
1: Sure. Or on the other hand, Jennifer, because there are certain communities that might in fact have smartphones because they don't have computers and they use their smartphones, those communities might be policed in more intensified. T- types of ways in ways where we know the technology has been faulty and that's with the facial recognition technology. It's been faulty. We've already seen that. There are books that have been devoted to looking at this. Ruha Benjamin's brilliant work. She's a professor at Princeton race after technology it's a book that's worth you know your listening audience uh, to pay attention to we know where these biases exist and what's important is that technologies don't always clear away the underlying biases in fact oftentimes what they do is build onto the biases that are already affecting our society. And I think it's one of the examples of seeing how certain types of social conditions, institutions and infrastructures, how those affect our society in times of pandemic. If one looks at now who's contracting and dying from COVID-19 in the United States, you see the dramatic racialized patterns. And you even see the hot spots amongst our incarcerated populations in jails and prisons. And all of that needs to be brought to the fore. It's very interesting because the fallback on and seeing some of that is that, well, you know, perhaps more black people wouldn't be so affected if their genes were different. No, black people aren't dying from COVID-19 at these dramatically disproportionate rate because of their genes. And again, that's one of the ways of using, you know, a kind of racialized rhetoric and stereotype in times of pandemic. No, they're dying at higher rates because of underlying racialized factors and racism in healthcare in the United States, which we've not fully addressed in our society. And I just give you a couple of examples. You think about Wisconsin, where Black people make up the majority of the cases of the people who have died of COVID-19 in that state. They make up only 6% of the population. How is that that there are over half of the deaths? In Milwaukee County alone, over 70% of the deaths. And we see similar patterns in Kansas, in Illinois, you know, across the United States. It's really horrific.
0: Well, we've talked about all of the ways in which we got to be careful when the government gets too much power. Either the government or these technology companies, these tools can be abused, misused, used with bias, you know, used without medical justification. But what's clear is that we are, in fact, in a crisis at the moment. This is a global pandemic, maybe not unprecedented, but certainly massive. And there's going to be a massive government response, right? And so we've already seen this with the shelter-at-home orders, now with the prospect of contact tracing and other types of monitoring and surveillance, and eventually— if all goes well, we end up with a vaccine, and then there'll be a whole other set of questions around what sort of policy is instituted around vaccines. And one of the things that undergirds all of this massive government response is the question of voluntariness. Any of these kinds of surveillance measures need to be voluntary, while at the same time, you can imagine a situation where mandatory vaccinations might be necessary. So I'm wondering... Both of you, how are you approaching this sort of fundamental question of voluntariness?
1: So, you know, I've written about with Erwin Chimerinsky this question regarding vaccinations and whether parents can be required to vaccinate their children. And we've written that, yes, they can, that none of our constitutional rights are absolute, even as civil libertarians, and we fight absolutely and vehemently For the protection of our rights, we know that it can be a death sentence for parents who choose not to vaccinate their kids. Now, there can be exceptions to that. There are families in which vaccines have caused the death of other children. In fact, there's a federal fund to help families who've encountered that, and there are ways of being able to opt out. And it's a very delicate question for many. It's become a significant issue. But here, too, we have to pay attention to health and science, right? I think that as a baseline, of course, we want voluntariness with whatever it is that we do. But I I think you're right for pushing at the full scope of this right do we want a vaccine and should people be you know required to get the vaccine well i think that boils down to a question of health and safety if people don't get the vaccine will it lead to the deaths of others or their own death and i think that that's the question that we you know want to ask with a typical flu that's not where we are right? So there are people who don't have to vaccinate, there are people who choose to vaccinate, and that's good. I think that what you know part of your question gets at, and I think this is really important, and this is not to punt, but information is critically important, right? Being able to have clear and accurate information that's derived from the scientific community, and that's not generated by, you know, partisanship or particular political ideology is exactly where we wanna be, and then we wanna be informed.
2: In addition to having any kind of restriction or obligation be based on the sound public health advice of experts, I think this is a area where privacy and security are really important because you want people to follow good advice voluntarily, and people will do that if they feel like they're being protected and that they're not you know, put at risk as a result. And there are many ways to evade orders or commands from authorities if you feel like it's going to expose you to surveillance or to some other danger like that.
0: I'm wondering, despite all of the challenges, we're facing, is there anything that's giving you hope? Maybe we start with you, Jennifer, as you sort of survey some of the technological solutions and any of the other sort of policies that you're aware of. You've talked about the risks that are involved and things we need to keep our eye on, but are you also seeing any reason for hope?
2: I mean, I do see that there are lawmakers, um, governors, decision makers who are talking about privacy and you know want to take it seriously. And I do think that there are proposals for use of data that are designed to be privacy protective and provide information to public health professionals. For example, we're seeing a number of initiatives where aggregated and anonymized data is being used to try to predict where future outbreaks are going to happen, or even where shelter in place is working or where it's not working. And if the data is truly anonymized, those types of things can provide real insights to experts. We worry, of course, about bias in the data as I mentioned, and about like how the information is going to be used. It should be used to encourage people and not to punish them because that is absolutely not helpful. But I do think that as part of this conversation, there has been a lot of attention and interest on the part of authorities to, and a lot of understanding that we don't need to trade civil liberties and public health, that we can actually protect both. And I find that heartening.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. You know, We can harmonize protecting the public health and promoting and protecting civil liberties. You know, with the data that's coming out about the racial disparities um, involved in COVID 19, it means that states across the country are having to confront patterns of racial discrimination that are baked deeply in their soil, that have resulted in lower life expectancies for people of color across the country, that have resulted in higher maternal mortality rates for uh, black women across the country that have resulted in higher infant mortality rates for you know folks across the country and so this data also helps to reveal underlying Problems in our society that are very urgent for us to address. And I hope that we come out of this better prepared for the future to take on the next coronavirus that will hit. Because my estimation is that it won't be a hundred years like the 1918 pandemic. It'll be more like H1N1, which was just a decade ago. And the next one may not wait a decade, the next one may be on hand within the next few years.
2: You know, Michelle, the other thing I think about that is just, you know, our health rises and falls together right now.
1: Absolutely. In
2: particular, right, because of the particular nature of this virus. And, you know, now I'm going to get irrationally optimistic. (laughs) Go for it. (laughs) Is that okay? (laughs) But it may be that that kind of communal interest leads people to take more seriously these inequities, in our system and particularly in our
1: medical system that you're raising. We've been in a critical time in the United States for thinking about our messaging and how we come together and the kind of guidance that you were just suggesting is great. I wish vigorously for people to take up that level of optimism and reframe the defensive messages that we've been hearing.
0: Jennifer Granick, Surveillance and Cybersecurity Council with the ACLU. And Professor Michelle Goodwin, Director of the Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy at UC Irvine School of Law. Thank you both so much for taking the time to join us and for sharing your deep insights on this important,
1: important topic. Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure to be with you and with Jennifer. Thank you. If you
0: enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We really appreciate the feedback. Till next week, peace.